Amen, church. It is the power of the cross that enables us to sing to him and to worship him this morning. If you would be turning in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15, we will continue our reading there. I trust you all are waking up after the time change and warming up after a cold start. Mark chapter 15. We'll be looking at verse 42 to the end of the chapter in verse 47. Mark chapter 15, verse 42 through verse 47. These are the words of God. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is God's word. You may be seated. Do you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we come before you. We've come before you acknowledging our great need for you as our high priest, seeing our own sin and our weakness, and yet encouraged that we can have the assurance of pardon based upon what you have done on our behalf, that you have redeemed us. Father, we thank you that you have given mouths to us to sing your praises. Thank you for uh, the instruments and our, our music team leading us in your worship as we seek to sing boldly and proclaim the power of the cross, what you have done, that your name is to be blessed above all other names. You are worthy to be praised as we join the angels in singing how holy and how other you are than us. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that we wouldn't just be hearers of it, but that we'd be challenged by it to be doers of your word. Father, we pray not just for ourselves, but for other churches. We thank you for giving other churches to this area. We pray this morning for Pine Grove Union Baptist Church this morning, that you would be with them, that your gospel would be proclaimed, that many would come to faith through the ministry of that church. Father, you would bring faithful preachers up in that congregation to bless their community. Father, I pray that you would continue that work. Father, we lift up our network of churches and the Reformed Baptist Network that you would be with them. Father, we lift up Redeemer Community Church in Arden, North Carolina. It's been on our heart, Lord, as they have struggled in these days and have made the decision to dissolve into another local congregation, that, Father, you would give 
Pastor Jeff and Pastor Greg wisdom, Lord, as they uh, merge with another church and uh, end their uh, leading as pastors in this next season, that, Father, you would help them to finish well, that, Lord, you would be with that church, Lord, as they are looking to what you would have uh, as they merge with this other congregation, that you would guard any discouragement or wiles of the enemy uh, to discourage or to uproot what is going on. That, Father, you would see to it that you would be praised and glorified by bringing these two congregations together rather than keeping them one, even though we have prayed that, Lord, you would continue this work at Redeemer. We trust you. And uh, we trust your leadership through those elders. And so, Father, we pray for them this morning. Father, we lift up the persecuted church. We know we have brothers and sisters around the world in various areas that are being persecuted uh, for their faith. We lift up the persecuted church of Venezuela this morning. That, Father, you would help them to stand firm, that they would continue sharing the gospel despite persecution. And, Lord, that you would have their way amongst them. Father, we are amazed that there are still people on this planet that have not yet heard of you and yet have not heard of you for generations. And I pray that, Lord, our generation would be one that makes great advancements in taking your word to unreached people. This morning, we lift up the Alugu people of China. Father, they have been a people that have dwelt in darkness and the light has not shined upon them, that, Lord, you would bring the scriptures to this people group, that, Father, they would hear of your great name, that they would hear of the sacrifice that the Lord Jesus has made on their behalf, that you would redeem many from that people group, Lord, that they might praise you and that you might establish a church amongst them. Father, we pray for this. It's our heart that your gospel would spread and that you would Save the lives of many that are going into eternity without you. Father, we pray for our world and the troubles therein. Of course, we pray for the war going on between Ukraine and Russia. Father, the many people that are dying, that you would provide comfort to those who are weeping. Father, for your church, that you would sustain her both in Russia and in Ukraine. Father, we pray that you would be with the refugees that are fleeing for their lives and for safety, that you would minister to their needs, that you'd raise up the churches in those surrounding countries to warmly welcome and aid and nourish those around them, that many would come to know you through these trials, O oh God. Father, we pray for our nation and its leaders. We humble ourselves before you, crying out for your mercy upon us as a people as well. Father, we lift up the sick. We think of Dot Mundy this morning and others that are feeling under the weather, that you would be with them. Continue to lift up Maketa Matkins as she continues to battle her cancer. We think of Scott Prevett as well, Kimberly Finney's father. Lord, we ask that you would be with Sarah Reed's mother as well, that you would continue to um, aid Sarah in, in bringing comfort to, to them in these uh, troubled days. Father, I also pray for my, my own Uncle Tom, Lord, that he had a heart attack this week, and as he goes in for a triple bypass in the morning, that, uh, Lord, you'd sustain him as he's in the hospital already and being prepped for tomorrow. 
that you would sustain him. Thank you that he knows you and he's trusting you. Be with my Aunt Beth as she seeks to comfort him. And uh, Lord, that that would be a successful surgery and that, Lord, um, he would have many more years to praise you and uh, follow in ministry in the ways that you have led him. Father, I pray for the grieving. Uh, Lord, uh, that you would be with Kitty and Ken. Thank you for bringing Ken to be with us this morning, but you would be with Kitty, Lord, as she goes to her brother's funeral today and all the emotions and sorrows that are overwhelming her heart, uh, that you would comfort her and comfort her brother Phil and Sandy, Lord, and the loss of Jerry, that, Father, you would bring hope to them through the word and the message of the gospel. Father, thank you that Pastor Kaysen could be there. I pray that he would bring comfort as he represents us, as we would very much like to be there and wrap our arms around our sister, that, Lord, you would give us wisdom to comfort her and to, to love her as she returns this week. Father, we pray again as we look at this text this morning and we consider your own death, that, Lord, you were buried, but the grave did not have the final say. And as we look into your word next week, we look forward to again being reminded of the resurrection. And yet we often forget to dwell upon this very fact that you were buried, that you were in the grave parts of three days before rising again. And so, Father, we thank you for the reminder of this, that you died in our place, and yet you rose again. And so we thank you. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, church, we are very close to coming to a close in the gospel of Mark. We have spent the good part of two years walking through this great text. And as we have seen, and as you have been listening this great book has been given to us in a twofold purpose. Mark has been trying to expose the very truths about who this Jesus is. And Mark comes to the conclusion and leads us, the readers, to this conclusion that Jesus was not just a mere man. He was the Messiah. And he did come in the form of a man, but he was fully God and fully man. That this Jesus, through his word and through his works, fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament. He, in fact, was and is the Messiah, that he died, that he rose again. But the other part of this second half of his gospel is clearly showing what it means to follow this Christ, what it means to be his disciple what it means to own him as your Savior and Lord, and therefore it has implications. And as we saw in chapter 9, that if you're to go after him, it will cost you everything. This is the Christ that Mark has been preaching. And so as we come to this text, we will consider his burial today. And next week, Lord willing, we will look at verses 1 through 8 of uh, concerning the resurrection. And as our uh, Pastor Quinn has already shared with us, uh, I want to take some time in Sunday school next Sunday to explain why we will not be preaching verses 9 through the end of the chapter, which traditionally ends um, here in our common uh, printing of the uh, present day text in verse 20. And we want to make a pastoral comment on what we believe about those verses and why. We encourage you, of course, to uh, seek out other resources and, and have more conversations, but it makes 
uh, where it makes an important note here that we need to uh, consider. So uh, if there's never been a plug for Sunday school, uh, next week is it. We will um, obviously record that as well um, for those who may be out of town or traveling and vice versa. But we want to look at this great ending of the book of Mark. It's a peculiar gospel in the way that it ends, and so we'll make notes about that next week. But our text before us, we want to focus here on a very important individual in the very uh, workings of God's will uh, at the end of Jesus' life and really the in-between of uh, him dying and rising again. So let's consider that this morning. During World War II, a battle took place at Monte Cassino, also known as the Battle for Rome. Allied forces were losing many men, and during one of the assaults, under heavy enemy fire, an Englishman by the name of Major Ian Thomas took out a German machine gun nest. He was decorated with a distinguished service order when Germans surrendered it was this Major Ian Thomas that went and took the flag of surrender. Major Ian shared multiple times in his life that he never knew why God spared him that day to accomplish that great act of courage amongst enemy fire and doesn't, in fact, know why it is that he was not struck with one bullet or even um, brazed by one. But he sought to surrender his life the rest of his life, to serve the Lord Jesus. And he went on to start an international ministry and mission uh, called Torchbearers International, which is now worldwide. It's very interesting when we consider great acts of courage like this. We're inspired, aren't we? The sense of bearing witness to our own souls that there is things worth putting our lives on the line for encountering danger and the risk of loss or even death, the human spirit is seemingly pushed to its limits to sacrifice for great causes. Of course, there's countless acts of courage in the scriptures. We think of Abraham to Moses, Joshua, and calling the people of Israel to take courage. Samuel, David, Jeremiah, not to mention the New Testament acts of courage by our own Lord Jesus as we've been studying, and also his followers, the apostles, the acts of the apostles and the great courage they went forth after the events that we are studying currently. But they went forward with bold faith because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so when we think of courage, we sometimes think of these great names, but really one of the overlooked acts of courage in the book of Mark, let alone the other gospels, let alone the New Testament, is right before our eyes this morning. This man that we know just a little bit about, this Joseph of Arimathea. We will see that while cowardice and hiding seems to be the predominant reaction of all of the disciples, including Joseph here, we also see that even after the crucifixion and resurrection, God is beginning to restore his disciples despite their weaknesses and failings. God was working in these men and these women to boldly identify with their Savior in his death and, yes, in his resurrection. 
So let's look at this short text here in four points. First of all, we want to focus here on the day of Christ's burial in verse 42, the day of Christ's burial. Secondly, the disciples' request. Speaking of Joseph here, we'll find that he is a disciple of Jesus. And in verse 43, he requests simply the body of the Lord Jesus. And there's more to that than we may realize. Thirdly, the delivery of the dead body of Jesus by Pilate. Pilate ultimately delivers the body of Jesus over to Joseph. And lastly, we see that Jesus um, is prepared and placed in a donated tomb of Joseph in verse 46 and verse 47. And we'll make applications to our own lives along the way. Let's start in verse 42. Notice our text before us says, and when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. If you'll remember through the sermons of Pastor Quinn and myself uh, at the beginning of Jesus' Passion Week, we know that this is the feast of Passover, that Christ fulfilled prophecies, that he would lay down his life, that he would die as the perfect and spotless lamb, that he would fulfill in a way the very Passover that they had been celebrating for generations, that he would ultimately die that God's wrath might pass over his own people. The beautiful power of the cross and what Jesus had accomplished. And it was by God's design and by God's decree that it would happen on this day at this time according to prophecy. We've also studied that over 300 prophecies plus some have been fulfilled in the very last week of Jesus's life. And so right here we see that this Friday evening came and it was the day of preparation. Remember that the Jewish day started at sundown and went the next day at sundown. If you would, 6 p.m. around that time would be the start of the next day. And so when you think about a day ending and a day starting, this helps those to understand why it is that Jesus was really, he died on a Friday and he was risen on a Sunday. And people say, well, that's not Three days. Well, it's a part of three days, especially when we look at it as the way that the Jews did according to their calendar. It was the part of three days. He died on a Friday, he was in the grave Saturday, and he was in the grave early Sunday, really for almost uh, 12 hours on Sunday when you think about it from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. on Sunday. And so when we consider this, we also need to say, why is it that Mark would bring attention, let alone the other gospel writers, that this was the day of preparation, and why is it that that's important? Well, I don't want to miss this. I think it's extremely important to see here that Joseph, let alone others, would not want to profane the Sabbath and break the law in even dealing with the body of their Lord. It's significant for us not to miss this. Pastor Quinn preached last week that Jesus again had finished his work on the cross and he cried out, it is finished, before he, before he said, as Luke records, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And our own Lord Jesus took his final breath. Jesus, in fact, died. The work of laying down his life, however, as a ransom for many had been completed. And all of this before the start 
of the Sabbath day, let alone the Sabbath rest. Perhaps there's a picture here that connects the creation week to the passion week that God was working and then he rested. But there was work and there was rest. Notice our text says the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. Why is it called the day of preparation? Well, while we know that Jews were called to work hard and recognize the uh, Sabbath day as the final day of their week, which would be what we would call Saturday. Uh, for those who know Spanish, sabado is, is where we get the Latin of Sabbath. And so while the Jews were working hard, they would prepare the day before the Sabbath that they might rest and obey the Lord and his commands. Father, followers of Christ, of course, followed in these footsteps, and we see in the context of the New Testament that the church began to recognize the time of meeting lining up with the what would become known as the Lord's Day because of the resurrection of Christ, and therefore was changed from the seventh day to the first day of the week as they identified with Christ's death and ultimately his resurrection. But I think it's worth stopping here for a moment to consider for ourselves that Joseph is honoring the Lord by a day of preparation. He is setting things and taking care of things that no one else would have. Remember, the disciples fled. Who is it that would take down the body of Jesus? Who was going to care for him? The Romans sure wouldn't. It was normal in crucifixion to allow dogs and vultures and wild beasts to eat away at a rotting corpse on a Roman cross. The Romans were excellent at executing, which we'll get to next week because if there's any doubt concerning the resurrection of Jesus, it would be this, that there is no such thing as a swoon theory that Jesus was somehow just expired and then somehow woke up in the, the cool of the tomb. He was dead, and the text is clear about that. And so... What about this day of preparation? What about us? Do we see the necessity of preparing for the worship of our risen Lord Jesus? Do we? Or is it just merely another day of recreation? I think we should be challenged again by this text while it is a different day in the sense of how we consider what the Jews were celebrating versus what uh, God's people today are called to celebrate. And I know that I'm speaking to those who are gathered here to worship Christ. And so it begs the question of why is it that we do this? Well, this is, this is the point of our text. What is it that consumes our thoughts on Sundays? I love how our confession says this in chapter 22 in paragraph seven. It says, as it is the law of nature that in general, a proportion of time by God's appointment set apart for the worship of God, so by his word in a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment binding all men in all ages, he has particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week. And from the resurrection of Christ was changed to the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's day and is to be continued to the end of the world as a Christian Sabbath, the observation of the last day of the week being abolished. 
And so many would draw attention again to the Ten Commandments. And I think it's important today that we don't miss the significance of the Fourth Commandment in our own thinking. We see it as practiced here by Joseph and many others, but also consider it as believers here. And while the Sabbath indeed was fulfilled with, by Christ as all of the commandments were, and it's his obedience that we trust in, it doesn't abolish the, the law of God that we are called to and actually enabled by the Holy Spirit to obey him. And so there's no special things that people would maybe claim that should be brought out of Sundays. And while we live in a generation that is really deconstructing their own uh, beliefs and all around us there is a, a lackadaisical attitude and an apathy that is setting in even in the evangelical church, I think it's important to take this point to show the very reverence of Joseph at this point, that he took it very important that he would obey the Lord on the Sabbath, but also accomplish what he was appointed to do prior to the Sabbath starting. And so while it is true that Christ indeed is our rest and he fulfilled the law perfectly, should it not constrain us to consider how we honor Christ and his redemptive work on our behalf in giving reverence to the Lord on his day? And so Joseph here made haste to bury our Lord Jesus on the day of preparation before it was complete. And we too can think about how we prepare our hearts for worshiping the living Christ, which begs the question of what we do on Saturdays. How do we prepare for his glory and, or rather for his worship, um, that he might be glorified? Again, one of the helpful things from our own confession, again, in paragraph eight, it says this, that the Sabbath then is kept holy to the Lord when men, after a due preparing of their hearts, there's that word again, preparing of their hearts, and ordering their common fares aforehand, that means taking care of business on Saturday, so you can be, worship, be ready to worship Sunday, do not only observe a holy rest all day from their own works and words and thoughts about their worldly employment and recreations, but are also taken up the whole time in public and private exercises of worship and the duties of necessity and mercy. You might think, well, why are we getting off on this? Well, I think it's here in the text. It's a day of preparation. Joseph, in his heart and his dedication to the Lord, is not only obeying him, we'll see here in a moment that he's known as a just and righteous man. And our calling as believers is nothing less to honor and reverence the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to make much of him. And one of the ways that we do that is how we worship him. And so I would encourage you from this text and others in the scriptures to consider how is it that you set apart one day in seven to honor and reverence and worship Christ. If you want to talk about that more, we'd be obviously more than happy to discuss that. And of course, that isn't to put an undue burden on those who serve or work in a capacity that requires them to work on Sundays. We know very well that, that soldiers and um, first responders, policemen and missionaries and others in, in hospital settings, and there's reasons why people are not able to be in a worship service. And that's not what we're talking about. It's ultimately the heart attitude of, are we obeying the Lord and are we seeking to honor him, except in these areas where we have duties to necessity 
and mercy. So right here in the first verse of our text, we're challenged by the very reverence of Joseph of Arimathea in preparing uh, the body of Jesus before the Sabbath. As Luke's account says in chapter 23, verse 56, it says this, on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Now, Luke was more detailed than Mark. Why is it that he brought this? Well, it's the same point that Luke is trying to make as Mark is here, that they did honor the Lord and they did rest according to the commandment. And that's a huge contrast from the religious leaders who had ought to have been leading in that direction. They have, in this weekend, had put to death an innocent man. They had totally violated their normal rules of operating and bringing somebody to trial. They had not spent time in prayer and fasting. They murdered an innocent man overnight, and now they're seeking to cover it up as they prepare, supposedly, with clean hearts and ready to worship on the Sabbath day. Do you see the arrogance there? Do you see the hypocrisy, which leads us now to our second point about speaking about this man, Joseph of Arimathea, and seeing his request. Look at verse 43. Joseph of Arimathea was a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. He took courage and he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. So let's pause a minute. What, what do we know about Joseph? Well, we see from this text, he's known as Joseph of Arimathea. That is the ancient city of Ramah in the just north of Jerusalem. It's known as the city of Jews. And it is the, the, really the birthplace and living place of the prophet Samuel. We know from Matthew chapter 27, verse 57, that he was rich. And that's important because we see that Christ Uh, called many to himself, not just the poor, but also the rich. It was a fulfillment of prophecy. We know from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, says this, and they made his grave, speaking of Jesus, with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. In other words, it was part of God's decree that Joseph would be the one that would take down and bury the body of Jesus, as we'll see with the help of Nicodemus, while all the other disciples had scattered and no one else was around to accomplish this very important task. And so here in verse 43, it tells us that he was also a respected member of the council. It's important to notice here that Joseph, I mean, um, uh, Joseph was in fact a member of the Sanhedrin. We say, well, how is that? The Sanhedrin voted to take the life of Christ in a, in a very uh, innocent way. Um, he, he died. He was an innocent man, and yet they, they, they asked for his murder. We know from chapter 27 of Matthew that it says that Joseph was a disciple, albeit a secret disciple, as John the Apostle adds in chapter 19, verse 38 of his gospel. And it says that he was a secret disciple. Why? Due to his fear of the Jews. Fear causes us to do crazy things, doesn't it? And so while we're looking at Joseph in his courageous manner, which we'll focus on towards the end of the message this morning, we also see his desire to hide and to be a secret believer, as it were. And we'll make mention of that. So there's reasons for his fear, but whether he should have come 
out as a believer sooner. That remains to be seen. But he wasn't alone in this. As I mentioned, Nicodemus was also a follower of Jesus. As John 3 records, he came to Jesus by night. John 19, it records that he bore witness that he was also helping Joseph bury the body of Jesus and prepared uh, burial um, spices and, and clothes as well. Further, our text says here that Joseph was, quote, looking for the kingdom of God. Well, what does that phrase mean? Well, I think the most simple way to put it is that he was looking for and expecting the coming of the Messiah. He was looking and considering all that Jesus was teaching. It's possible that he was an eyewitness of the very crucifixion itself and was led to and moved with compassion to take this act of kindness and remove the body of Jesus, let alone go ask for the body of Jesus. Further, Luke chapter 23 adds that he was a good and righteous man. The scriptures say that of him. Who had not consented to their decision, speaking of the council's decision and their action. So we have a man on the inside, a council that altogether has made the decision to put Christ to death, and he is on the inside, and he doesn't consent to this, which also shows that probably this council was not listening to alternative viewpoints on what should be done with Christ. Now, we don't have that in the text. We don't know what really happened. The scriptures are silent on it but we know from the text right here that he did not consent to their decision and their action. And Luke goes so far as to record that in his gospel. So it's this Joseph that 40, verse 43 tells us that he, quote, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Well, upon looking at this, we might say, why do you have to build up courage to go ask for a dead body? Well, remember, Romans were excellent at executing people. And really, when a criminal was put to death, it was the property of Rome at that point. And what would be done with the body was, according to their decree, not any persons or common citizen. And so it's amazing here that Joseph, as, as he's been hiding in the shadows as a follower of Christ decides at this point that he is going to come out and take courage to identify and actually request for the body of a so-called criminal and take him off the cross and give him a proper burial all before the Sabbath came on around sunset. Which means that Joseph had made these preparations beforehand. It would be a lot of work that he and uh, Nicodemus would have to accomplish before sundown. And if you remember, as Pastor Quinn was preaching in the last few weeks, Jesus died around 3 p.m. And so there was a lot that had to be done, but this plan was already at play. And so we know from the text, as we'll look at here in a few moments, that he was requesting the body of Jesus, and Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. In other words, Pilate, uh, uh, Joseph was ready to go to Pilate as Jesus was dying. Perhaps he was at the very witness of his last breath. And so we have here a great act of courage by our brother Joseph. And so while Joseph remained quiet discerning uh, his, and concerning his uh, discipleship, um, it was after Jesus' trial and crucifixion that he would be secretive no longer. So this was a bold move. 
and Pilate, no doubt, to go before would have been a fearful and humbling thing. But he was set apart, as Isaiah had prophesied, to be the one who would request the body of Jesus and take this badly beaten and bloodied corpse to show our dead Savior the very reverence that he deserved. And he would be buried and not left hanging upon a Roman cross longer than his appointed time. You can imagine what a gruesome job this was. Jesus was not just a dead corpse. It was a gruesome death. Crucifixion was not pretty. There would have been uh, bodily fluids all over the corpse. In fact, a pool possibly at the bottom of the cross. He would have had to get, uh, no doubt, a ladder or some kind of thing to remove Jesus from the cross. Remember, he was nailed to the cross. It was not the concern of Rome to see how a body was treated after it was killed. They would just let the elements take over. It was a gruesome job and no doubt motivated by Joseph's recognition and heartfelt conviction and devotion of who this was that he was taking down from the cross. It begs the question from us, are we courageous or are we secret believers? Surely there was somewhat of an excuse for Joseph living in fear for his life today, as we might say of believers in Iran or of North Korea. But we are, are we truly secret believers? Do people have to question us and interview us to know what we believe about Christ? Or is it clearly known by our lives and our communication with others that we are Christ followers, that we worship the living Christ and we are identified with him and that we are following him boldly and courageously? For you younger ones, you don't even have to speak in public anymore. You just make a comment on Facebook and you're berated for what you believe. That we don't even have to leave the comforts of our own home and we're persecuted, at least in word. Church, we're called in light of Christ's redemptive work on behalf of us to boldly stand and identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark is bringing this out as he brings Joseph to the front and center in this passage to say, consider this Joseph, consider his life, consider who he is, that he would be secret no longer, he would be courageous and ever be known as the text of scripture says that he was a follower and bold disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And often we read over this, we focus on the crucifixion, we focus on the resurrection and we sometimes can miss this great act of courage. Christ taught his disciples this very thing, did he not? The Gospel of Matthew tells us that everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And for many of us, those words ring true when we are called to boldly stand to make known the gospel of Christ even amidst persecution. And so it was written in the context of bringing courage to the disciples, not to mention the fearfulness of men. This was written in light of that when he was encouraging his disciples that even in light of persecution, that they should stand firm. So dear friend, what does your commitment to Christ look like? Are you ashamed of Christ? 
Or do you boldly proclaim what you believe about him? Not in an obnoxious way, but in a way that is dear and true and that you are not ashamed to make known. Perhaps you're fearful of what some will think if it became known that you are identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, you are a Christian. Church, let it be known that there can be no silence on our behalf. People can't know the gospel by just observing your life. You have to speak. You have to communicate what the gospel is. And church, we have brothers and sisters who are suffering in this world for far less just of association with Christ and his body, the church. And so we too are called to go forth boldly and proclaim with our words and our works that Christ is our Lord. But notice that after this request here, that Pilate, in fact, does deliver the body to Joseph. Look at verse 44. It says, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. Let me just pause there for a moment because many crucifixions would take hours, in fact, days. And it was a slow, agonizing death. In fact, Mark doesn't record this, but many of the Jews were uh, wanting to make sure that Jesus was dead and buried before the Sabbath. And so they requested that his legs be broken to hasten a quicker death. But we know that Jesus, his life wasn't taken from him. He laid it down there freely. Didn't, we looked at that, didn't we? And so he gave up his spirit and he died around 3 p.m., being on the cross for maybe six hours total. And so notice in our text that Pilate summons the centurion who would have been in charge of making sure that these men were on the cross. He asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. No doubt Pilate is still thinking about all that had happened and what he was responsible for. And he gave charge to have Jesus crucified no doubt this came as a surprise to him that Jesus had died so quickly. And so when we consider this, we know that it was a part, again, of the decree and plan of God. Psalm 34, verse 20 says this, he keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken. Again, referring to them wanting to speed up his death and break the bones of the other, those that were dying, uh, Rome allowed Jews to do that, uh, just that would hasten their death, even though they would be happy to let them continue rotting on the crosses. Remember, Jesus was crucified with two others, one on his right and one on his left. And so when they came to Jesus, they found that he was dead. We also know from the law in Deuteronomy 21, 23, that, that a corpse could not be laying there overnight, and it would have to be dealt with uh, prior to that. And so we see here that he was surprised, he summons the centurion, and when they learned from the centurion that he was dead, they granted the corpse to Joseph. What a humbling thing it was for Joseph to ask in this way for the body of Jesus. And as said before, that his burial was part of his ultimate plan and that he would fulfill prophecy by being laid in a borrowed tomb, which leads us to our last point here, that the dead body of our Lord was prepared and placed in a donated 
tomb. Look at verse 46. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. We know that Joseph was more than likely preparing these things uh, prior to Jesus' death uh, based on the time. But we also here have hints of um, Joseph's generosity. He purchased these things with his own money. We see that he obviously gave him his own tomb that had been hewn out of rock. That was not for a common person. Joseph had a plot in the garden which was just outside of Jerusalem, which was really reserved for the upper class. And so he had carved this out of rock, no doubt had spent lots of money on this, and he had prepared for himself and his, uh, his own family that he would be buried there, and yet he donated it to his Lord. Notice that he had prepared linen shrouds. You can see how, again, the Bible doesn't give us... Uh, the, the clear description or the gruesome details of taking him off the cross, but it no doubt would have been a job. And he wraps him up, shows his care and reverence for the dead, and wraps him in a linen shroud. And then he lays him in this tomb. And then he is the one that rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. More than likely, this was a large stone, but was made in such a way that could seal a tomb with... Um, just a, a little bit of strength to roll in front of the tomb, but was made in such a way as to set in place where it could not be removed. Oftentimes, they would keep these open to care for the body and put spices and, and things to help uh, uh, the burial of the dead and, and the, of course, the stench of death. And these also were uh, prepared by Nicodemus, it says, in uh, in the Gospel of John. Herbert Lockyer, a Bible uh, scholar, said, thus the one born in the virgin womb was buried in a virgin tomb. And so Jesus truly identified here with the poor in his birth and the rich in his death. And what hope that should speak to all of us, that whether no matter where we find ourselves on an economic time scale, that God is able to meet us where we are at, that he loves the rich and he loves the poor and he calls all of us to faith and repentance and by his decree we have what we have and are where we are, but the Lord is able to meet us again at our proper place. And so we see here that not only did he humble himself in giving up his own tomb, Joseph prepares the body and the sacrifice, I mean, I mean the spices that were bought to um, anoint the body and prepare it for burial and, of course, place it in the tomb and shut it up prior to sundown. Verse 47 also says that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. No doubt they were following we know that if you go back to verse 41, as Pastor Quinn preached this passage, it said that when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came with him to Jerusalem. But if you read the verse before that in verse 40, it says the, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene 
Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph and Salome. So it's important to see here that these women also were present and were noticing that. And that's important because we'll see in chapter 16, verse 1, that it's the women who actually are the first witnesses that the tomb is in fact empty on that first Sunday morning. So what a beautiful text we have before us. What, what then is the application of these things to our own hearts? Well, as we started with, we may never uh, face enemy fire and running to take out an enemy machine gun nest as an act of courage. But I think this text helps us in a very common way about what biblical courage looks like, what obedience to the Lord looks like, and what reverence to Christ looks like. And so as we've already made notice of, how is it that we respond to our Lord Jesus in this way? Have we considered Joseph's life in this way, in how he has a devotion to Christ, that he's decided to no longer be someone that hides in the shadows, but boldly preaches and boldly shows that he is identified with Christ and his gospel? In what ways are we challenged to consider what it is that we can do in small acts of obedience that go unnoticed by everybody else? Again, all the disciples scattered. We see very little of uh, attention being drawn to Joseph after this in the New Testament, but he followed Christ. He obeyed Christ and showed reverence to his worship and to make known that he would be the one that... Um, would place him in his own tomb in a humble way. Church, in what ways are we just plugging along? In what ways, while we are not here in this text and we're not facing the kind of persecution that these, let alone the early church or other believers in our generation are facing, in what ways are we just hiding out in the shadows? We have a firm belief in Christ. We have a firm confidence that Christ is who he says he is, and yet there's this sense that we have not yet followed boldly, making it known who he is and where we stand. And so this text draws us to that conclusion. Are we standing in the shadows in this way while we watch the world pass us by? Or perhaps God is using us in our generation to be sons and daughters of the king that will make him known in not just magnificent ways, but in also common ways. That on this road to the celestial city that we can draw many to our side. There's many who remain insignificant, it seems, in the light of what God has accomplished in his redemptive purposes. But it's people like Joseph and even Mary who uh, showed great reverence to him by breaking a very expensive um, a bottle of nard and, and anointing him with it. And he said, this was anointing for my burial. And the very spices that were given at Jesus' birth perhaps were the same spices that were used to anoint his dead body after he sacrificed himself on a tree for you and for me. And so the very common and yet profound response that we are called to is in reverence and in worship to our King and whether we are a believer here this morning that should be challenged to such acts of courage and reverence to the Lord. We also have to make the proclamation of Christ's great gospel that he is who he says he is.
that he laid down his life and therefore the gospel deserves and demands to be believed and owned. Which calls you, if you've never bowed in faith and repentance to the Lord Jesus Christ, that today can be that day of salvation. The very proper reverence that you can show this day is to trust him and respond to him. And so in what ways are you called, dear friend, to respond to this gospel, this great reality that Christ has died in your place, that you deserved the wrath that came upon him and that his blood was shed for you, but he also died and was buried this most important part of the gospel that is often overlooked, that he was dead and he was buried, according to the scriptures, but he also rose again. This understanding that Jesus was indeed a man, but he was a God-man. He was different than all others. He was born of a virgin, born of a miraculous cause, and had brought, has been brought to faith, uh, or brought to worship through the faith and uh, work of his people and has told us concerning his word and his scriptures that we are to be found guilty before him, that he would be the one that would be our focus, that he would be our sacrifice and indeed our Passover lamb. So church, consider Joseph. Consider his act of faith and courage Consider Nicodemus, according to John 19, and his acts of faith as well alongside Joseph. And consider your own devotion to him in how you are showing reverence due our precious Lord and to guard against uh, the very fallacy of the um, Sanhedrin in putting an innocent man to death. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this text. Thank you for this passage of Scripture concerning Joseph of Arimathea, the very strength that this passage can encourage us with, that while so many things surround our lives and the craziness of all that happened that day of your death and burial, that you still appointed a man to be in charge of a very gruesome task and yet a very reverential task to bury your body, body that would raise three days later and appear to many. And to Joseph, what a glory that would be to see the very body that he had put in the grave raised to life that his faith and his trust in you would be realized just as much as the other disciples. Lord, we thank you for these passages of Scripture that not only invigorate our faith, but also challenge us to the very details surrounding what you accomplished at the cross. Lord, would you help us to respond in this way, to be people of courage, to be ones that would take the seemingly meaning, uh, menial tasks and to be known as acts of faith. That, Lord, we would follow you in obedience 
in the small ways like Joseph did in preparing for the Sabbath and doing what is not a pleasant job in service to you. And Lord, there's many amongst us that serve in, in very uh, non-prominent places. And we thank you for their service. We thank you for what you're doing through them and the ministries they have. That we're not to live for the applause of men, but we are to live boldly and to live out loud in the sense of our, our devotion to you. And so would you help us in that way? And Father, if there's one here this morning that has been considering the very claims of Christ and the gospel here in this text that you died and were buried and you were resurrected, that, Lord, you would call them to faith and repentance, that they would respond boldly to you. That, Lord, today would be a day of firsts in the sense that they call out to you and find life in Christ. And so, Father, as we continue our study next week, Lord, would you encourage us as well that you did not stay in the grave, but you rose again, that all might have life, and that you might be the first fruits from the grave. In Jesus' name, amen.